All right, here we go. How about a message on, guess the topic, the resurrection. And sometimes I, I feel this way. I feel like we always talk about the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And makes logical sense, right? But I think what happens for many of us is we slot the truth, the doctrine of the resurrection and its importance for one day a year. So let's, let's bring out the resurrection, let's dust it off, and let's talk about it. But you know, you know, Christian, the doctrine of the resurrection is of crucial importance not just once a year, not just once a month, not just once a week, not just once a day. The fact that Jesus rose again is of crucial importance for your salvation. So this is not just a truth that we're going to take a look at once a year. It gets a lot of airtime. It is across the world. Resurrection's getting a lot of airtime this morning. And here's the reality. We're much more comfortable with Jesus in a crib than we are with Jesus emerging from an empty tomb. It's, it's mysterious. It's supernatural. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to comprehend. We, we love Christmas Jesus, but Easter Jesus confuses us. I was thinking of ways that God could have made this easier for us. If God had made a movie instead of left us with this, wouldn't it have been easier? Imagine a movie God could make. God obviously didn't think a movie about Christ or a movie about the resurrection would suffice. If we could see it, we think, we could remove the confusion. God says that faith comes not by seeing, but by, do you know what it says? Hearing. So this crazy thing that I'm up here doing now, which is called preaching, is going to seem crazier and crazier and crazier the longer we live, I think. In an increasingly secularized nation, this thing is going to get weirder and weirder and weirder. but it's what God's called us to do. And it's how he communicates the truth of Jesus. The truth of the resurrection, no, it does. It, it, it confuses us. For people who aren't Christian, the resurrection lacks credibility. It's like, well, how, how do we know that it's true? It's so strange. It's so unbelievable. It's so supernatural. Richard Dawkins, he said this, we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. For many people, the resurrection lacks credibility, so it's weird. It's not worth our time. Even for Christians, 
that seems lacking in significance. That's why we only think about it periodically. We acknowledge it. We know it matters. But we, but we don't live in the good of it as much as we should. The idea of the resurrection, though, was not something that was periodically talked about by the writers of the New Testament. They talk about the resurrection a lot. We tend to talk about the resurrection a little. So we should, we should look at that. What's, why is there a disparity? The disciples talk about the resurrection a lot and write about the resurrection a lot in God's holy, inspired, inerrant word, but we tend to talk about the resurrection a little. So I'll ask a question. Who needs to change? When the Bible emphasizes something and we don't, it's not the Bible that needs to change. When, when the New Testament writers emphasize something, preachers should emphasize that same thing. So, here we go. Acts chapter 3. The resurrection is crucial. Why? Because it means we can be certain of our salvation. Do you want certainty this morning? Do you want assurance this morning? Then you need to hear about the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can be certain of our salvation. Does that mean anything to you guys? Am I preaching to to people whose hearts need to be warmed? Or are you warm to that idea this morning? The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that your salvation is certain. Does that mean anything to you, church? It should. It should. But I confess, those truths, that truth doesn't warm my heart the way that it needs to. And my prayer is that it would warm your hearts and warm my heart the way that it should this morning. Let's look at this text. It's a little bit of a longer text, but the story in it is is just so great. And the story, the narrative, is important if we'll understand the points I'm going to make about the resurrection. So this is Acts chapter 3, written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he is telling the narrative of the early church. The Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples. This is Acts chapter 3. Now, Peter and John, two disciples, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, now try to get yourself in a story. A man, lame from birth, was being carried. So you picture that in your mind. Try to get that in your mind. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. It's a crippled man. He's a beggar. Every day. Drop there, in front of the gate. You got it? Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He's asking for money. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But 
Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wouldn't that fill you with wonder and amazement? at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? I can think of one reason. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. We're listening, church, to the words of Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples. Peter is talking about the resurrection like he normally did and does. Peter and John are at the center of a mob because they, through the power of Christ, have just healed a crippled homeless man. Born seriously handicapped, he was carried to the city, to the gate, the temple, to the temple gate, every day. Not because he had hope that he would be healed, but because he needed something to eat. He needed money. And he had no way of making it. And there was no one, the only way people knew how to take care of him was to carry him there, position him where he would stay all day and beg for money for the people who were going through the gate. He begs for money and he gets legs. And it astonishes everyone in the near vicinity. And it causes a huge commotion. Did you see how much the, the writer Luke took time to say walking and leaping and praising? Uh, whenever writers repeat themselves, you should make note of that. And he said that over and over, walking and leaping and praising, walking and leaping and praising. It stands in contrast to crippled. It's changed. And the response is, as you can imagine, walking and leaping and praising. He didn't care what you thought about him. When he went walking and leaping and praising, 
I'm sure he didn't rehearse his dance. I'm sure he did not care at all what you or anyone else thought of him in that moment when Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give to you in Jesus' name. Get up and walk. And he grabs him and his legs go straight and he's able to walk and run and praise. I'll bet you that guy walked and leaped and praised everything he did. Like how long would it be before that wore off? Like you get up in the morning, okay, the guys will be coming soon to take me to the, to the temple gate. Wait a second, I can walk, and I can leap, and I can praise, and I can go get a job, and I can take care of my own situation, and now I can even have a family if I wanted to. Walking and leaping and praising and not caring what anybody thought about his response. But the people, it creates a huge commotion. And a large crowd appears. And so Peter starts to preach. He's got this large crowd, and he starts to preach to the crowd. And I want you to see something that is truly amazing. It's this. Peter does not focus on the man's healing. That's not what he... He has this chance to address everyone that's gathered because this man is healed. And he doesn't say much at all about the healing. His focus is not the healing. His focus... His focus is on the resurrection of Jesus. And he preaches in one verse, verse 15... He preaches three points that show the crucial connection between this man's healing and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His quick three-pointer highlights the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection shows us that Jesus is who he says he is. And that's crucial. Because that ties that back to the first point I made, which is the resurrection is crucial in understanding our salvation. The resurrection means that we can be certain of our salvation. So I want to give you three quick pointers that Peter gives that indicate Jesus is who he says he is. And because he is who he says he is, He can save us. Who did he say he was? Who does Peter say that he was? He was rejected. I'll give you the three. He was rejected. He was raised. And he was vindicated. He was rejected. He was raised. And he was vindicated. Look at... Reject it. I'll show you right where I get it. Verse 15. And you killed the author of life. That's rejection. When you kill someone, you have ultimately rejected them. You have rejected them in the most serious, significant way that you could. Jesus was completely and utterly rejected. 
Peter doesn't want the crowds focusing on what he had done to heal this guy. He wants the crowd focusing first on the fact that this crowd that is gathered has rejected him, indeed killed him. So these are the similar people when Jesus had come into town the week before that were praising him, rolling out the red carpet. Here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. He's our king. He's the contender. He's a contender for the title of the king of the Jews. Everybody praising him. And Peter's saying to that same crowd, listen, you, you praised him last week, but you killed him on Friday. You completely rejected him. You called for his crucifixion, and, and you asked that in keeping with the, 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 the legal demands of the day, and at the Passover, you asked that we release an actual rebel murderer in Jesus' place. So we released Barabbas to you and crucified Jesus because you demanded it, because you killed him. Jesus was rejected. Why? Because of what he said about himself. Because he said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. we got to deal with Jesus' resurrection in order to allow... we got to deal with Jesus' rejection in order to allow the resurrection to have meaning to us. So I want to quickly show you the ways in which he was rejected. Who rejected Jesus? Who rejected him? The Jews rejected Jesus. His own people rejected him. They brought all kinds of phony charges against him. Hours of silence. They bring him into a, a, a phony courtroom, making up lies. He was asked point blank. He, after hours of silence, he was asked point blank whether he was the Christ, the Savior. The only time Jesus broke his silence in that phony trial that lasted for hours was once. Are you the Christ? He responded, two words, I am. That's all he said. He didn't even say that to defend himself. Jesus could have defended himself. He chose not to defend himself because he had you in mind. Because if he had defended himself, we would all lose. He says, I am. If anybody knows their Bibles, that was a powerful kick in the stomach to the religious leaders of the day. There's, one other, there's other times in the Scripture where God reveals himself as the I am. One of the most precious truths from the Old Testament is that God revealed himself to his people by giving his people his name. It was a personal name. Why did God give his people his personal name? Because he wanted to have a personal relationship with his people. He gave this name to Moses. Was Moses was called to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. God and his people 
are on a first name basis. He said, tell them the I am has sent you. He wants to have a personal relationship with his people. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. Think about how we do that. Think about how in different situations we reveal our, uh, a name to people that they can call us that is not an indication that we want a personal relationship with them. People with titles can do this. I always get a kick out of professors at the university. And I get it. They worked hard. They've got their PhD, and they want you to refer to them as Dr. So-and-so. And I get it. It's respect. They earned it. But in saying, refer to me as Dr. So-and-so, you are making this statement. I want a professional relationship with you. I don't want a personal relationship with you. I always get a kick out of it. Sometimes new people that have been in church for a while, they want to call me like Reverend Lynch. I don't even know who they're talking about. <laughs> like it's so far from me to, and I'm saying because I'm like Mr. Humble, because I'm not. But that's not where I get tangled up. Like, I'm not looking for a title. I'll brag about a lot of other things in my life, but I don't have, the, you don't have to call me pastor or reverend or anything like that. And people are, that's what she calls me. She calls me PK because I, I bothered her so much about that. She called me Pastor Kenny, Pastor Kenny, Pastor Kenny. I said no. So she said, all right, I'm going to call you PK then. When I say to someone, call me Kenny, I'm saying to you, I'm good with us having a personal relationship. God says to his people, call me I am. Call me by my personal name. Why? Because I want to be friends with you. Because I want a personal relationship with you. Why did Jesus die? You were trying to figure out the answer to that question so that God could have a personal relationship with his people. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you can have a real relationship with Jesus? You can call him by his name. Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. He chooses people like us for friends. A lot of you wouldn't choose me for a friend. And I wouldn't choose you. Jesus chooses you and you. And you. And he knows everything about you. He knows it all. He knows the worst of it. And he says, I'm going to die to make them my friend. He identifies with sinners. Jesus was rejected by the Jews. Why? Because he said, I am. Are you the Christ? I am. Yahweh. 
He was claiming to be God, and that got him in huge trouble with the Jews. All right, we've got to keep moving here. You with me still? The Jews handed him over to the Romans, and the Romans crucified him because the Romans were in rule at the time. So they handed Jesus over to do their dirty work. And he was rejected by the Romans as well under Pilate. They sentenced him to death. Pilate, actually, Scriptures tell us, couldn't find anything wrong with him, but in order not to make a problem with all the people, he didn't want a mob rule on his hands, he goes forward with the crucifixion of Jesus. They charged, the charge against him was he was resisting authority because he claimed to be the king. And so they rejected him, and they killed him. That's not the worst of it. There's someone else that has rejected Jesus. It's not the Jews, and it's not the Roman rulers. Do you know who else rejected Jesus? God. God rejected Jesus there on the cross. We know the Bible details some of the physical suffering that Jesus endured. And that's the problem with movies. That when I, I was saying, was, when you think about a movie, um, when you watch a movie of the cross, that's one of the things they can get really, they can really elaborate artistically on the physical suffering of Jesus. And he did physically suffer. But the reason why the Bible mentions so few sentences devoted to the physical suffering is because what can't be captured on film, this isn't the reason, but what can't be captured on film is the true suffering that Jesus endured, which was his being separated from God. How do you show that in a movie? If you watch just the crucifixion of Jesus in a well-done movie, do you know what it looks like? It looks like the devil wins and Jesus loses. Unless you can see by faith what God was doing there on the cross. He was rejected by God. That's why Jesus prayed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you rejected me? This is the only time that when Jesus prays, he refers to God as my God, my God. Do you know what Jesus always refers to God as when he prays? Every time you look at one of his prayers, every single time. Do you know what he refers to God as? My Father, my Father. Not on the cross, my God. Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have a relationship with God as Father. This is the whole idea of substitution that Jairus preached on Friday night. Jesus was forgotten so that we could be remembered forever, from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus Christ on the cross bore all the eternal punishment that our sins deserved. Jesus paid that price so that God could be your Father. Could be our Father. He was thoroughly rejected. You killed Him. It's death. The end of the story. Let's move to the next point. Jesus was rejected. He said He would be rejected. He was rejected, ultimately. But that didn't stop there. He was raised. 
Peter says it this way. You killed the author of life, verse 15, whom God raised from the dead. This is his three-point sermonette on who Jesus is. He was rejected. He was raised. Death is the end. I've done funerals, and, and there's always a lot of crying during the, the memorial service. And then we go to the grave site, and people start crying again when the coffin goes into the ground. Why? Well, we know why, because it marks the permanence of that. Death, and when you go into the ground, means the end. It's over. Every human story ends in death. There's no more to write in the person's biography after they die. Peter is right in the middle of his little short three-point sermon, and just when we thought it was over, you killed him. That's the end of the story, right? That's the credits rolling. That's the end. Peter says, no, don't leave. Come back. It's not over yet. You thought the game was over. You thought your favorite team had lost because the buzzer had sounded. It's not over. He killed him. God raised him. When they lifted Jesus off of the cross, he was dead. Whoever, whoever did that, when they loosened those nails and got them out of him, he, his body fell onto that person. And he carried that dead body of Christ wherever they were taking him. He was dead. When they laid him in the tomb, there was no mistaking the fact that the body had no life in it. They put him in the grave dead. And this is Easter. And God raised him from the dead. It's the most incredible reversal you've ever seen. The resurrection is the ultimate reversal. And it connects back to your salvation. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. He said he would be rejected. He said he would die. And then he said, God will raise me on the third day. The resurrection declares Jesus to be the Son of God. He made that claim. And the Jewish leaders slapped him for it. Because that was blasphemous to be the Son of the Most Blessed. How ridiculous Jesus must have looked when the religious leaders watched him nailed to the cross after having said, I am the Son of God. That's why they said things to him. Yeah, right. If you're the Son of God, then save yourself. You're not the Son of God. You're a blasphemous weirdo. And then when they buried him, Oh, they must have been so happy. Finally, we got rid of this guy. He's dead. I mean, we proved he's not the son of God. 
Jesus was slapped and beaten for saying that he was the Son of God, but he was right all along. What proves it? The resurrection. Jesus told everyone he was the Savior. They said, you're going to save us. Why don't you first save yourself? Jesus might have responded in this way. I can't save myself and save you at the same time. I'm going to die so that I can save my people. Jesus dies, and you're saved. And he raises again. He rises again to secure our salvation. The cross was his promise to die. The resurrection is the proof that he accomplished it. That outrageous claim he made about his death being a payment for sin is true. How do we know? Because he's alive. Because he rose again. So Jesus was rejected. He was raised. And then what happened? He was vindicated. Look at verse 15. You killed whom God raised To this we are witnesses. God vindicated Jesus through his resurrection. Jesus was publicly vindicated, evidenced by Peter's words, to this we are witnesses. Peter was a witness. Peter knew Jesus before he died. He he saw him crucified. He knew he was buried. And then he saw Jesus again in his resurrected form. The resurrection didn't happen in a private corner. If you're here today and you're exploring the claims of Christianity and you're like, yeah, but who can prove the resurrection? It wasn't a private matter between Jesus and the Father. God didn't go Houdini with like a hand is quicker than the eye trick. God raised Jesus from the dead and he went public with it and it, the, the fact that Jesus was ro- rose again, his resurrection is as historically noted as his birth and his crucifixion. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen by eyewitnesses. Some of the women that followed him, then he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to Paul, and the scriptures tell us to 500 others. Now listen, you might have a hard time getting back into time, into the ancient Near East. But I'm saying, if somebody accuses you of something and you say, I've got 500 eyewitnesses, case closed. They are not going to bring a case against you if you can march 500 eyewitnesses in. 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus in his resurrected body. Jesus is who he says he is, And the resurrection is the proof. Jesus isn't just some hip religious concept. He's not just some prophet. He's not some great teacher on the stage of history. We're not just breaking Jesus out on Easter morning because we want to feel good about springtime. Jesus is who he is to us because he died and rose again on Easter morning. Amen? Jesus left the grave and he didn't stand in a private corner somewhere. It was displayed publicly. And now he sits enthroned over all on his everlasting throne. And one day, every knee will bow 
and every tongue confess, and everyone will see him on that throne. He rules and reigns as the resurrected Savior. He won't be privatized. He won't be pigeonholed. He won't be carried around in our pockets until Sunday mornings or Easter morning. Just like he went public with that truth, Brandywine Grace, we got to go public with that truth. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Let me ask the band to return in a, a short story and then we'll close this down. What kind of response do you think? Jairus asked a great question on Good Friday. He was saying, okay, Jesus died as our substitute. What kind of response should that get from us? Like, there should be a response with the resurrection, right? There, there, and, it, and, it, and it, I think it seems obvious what that response is, but what is the response that God is looking for? And I was trying to think of how, how can we make this fresh, what kind of response should, should there be that, that Jesus wrote the check promising to save us and then we waited for the check to clear and it did on Easter morning and all of the blessings in Christ, if you're in Him, are now yours because the check was accepted, cleared for payment. What should that do in us? When I was, when my parents, I was born when my dad was, had just turned 17 years old. My parents got pregnant with me when, when my dad was in 10th grade. You go think about that. And after thinking about it, they decided that they would keep this baby. He'd drop out of school and take care of it. My dad's not the brightest man in the world. But he got up and went to work every day. Take care of him. My dad was a kid with a kid. And I used to watch the anxiety that he felt. Because we were poor. And I remember when I was about eight years old, he had received a check for a job that he had finished as a house painter. And he was, we needed the cash now. Like, unless you've been poor, you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about cash next week. Cash next week is not going to put food on the table tonight. I'm serious, guys. I'm saying that this is, this is the way it was. And my dad, I was about eight years old, driving with him to the bank, and all he wanted to know, the owner had given him a check, and had signed the check. But what he didn't know was whether they would cash that check and give him the money that we needed right then. Like if they said to us, well, yeah, put the check in your depositing account and you'll get the money in a week when it clears. That wasn't going to work. 
I needed the money that night. And I can remember the anxiety that my dad felt when he kind of sheepishly presented that check to the teller. I remember the look in his eyes when he was looking at me like, And I remember the look in his eye when that bank teller started counting out the money. And I remember the look in his eye when I realized at eight years old that the money was going to come under that little. I remember the feeling I had. Man, the anxiety is gone. The check cleared. The signature was approved. The promise to pay resulted in immediate payment. And the joy that I felt in that moment is something of the joy that you should feel that Jesus wrote a check when He died on the cross, and He gave you that check, and you have presented it to God for payment, and God has paid out because Jesus rose again. What response? I'll tell you the response. I'll tell you the response. This is the reason why Luke put this together. Whatever walking and leaping and praising looks like when you're crippled is what it ought to look like when you realize that that Jesus promised to save you and his resurrection is proof that he did. (laughs) Anybody want to walk and leap and praise? Joe wants to. Is there? I know Joe will. Shouldn't it produce that kind of response? Boy, if it's only on Easter Sunday, if it's only on Easter Sunday where we bring out the resurrection, we dust it off and talk about it, at least only on Easter Sunday, it ought to be the response like a kid who feels anxious at the, at the checking account and, and at the teller and the money comes through and there's relief and there's joy and a crippled beggar can now walk and leap and praise God. Brandy Wine Grace, get out of your seats and tell God with your praise and with your worship that you're thankful for the promise to save you that is proof that he did through his resurrection. Amen.